Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, a longtime reporter at Philadelphia's WPVI-TV since the 1960s remembered in his early days spending shifts just listening to a police scanner, waiting for a crime to happen. The station's decision to adopt a then-novel action news format dictated that hyper-focus on crime. But, as detailed in a new report from the Philadelphia Inquirer, it also dictated that the scanner being monitored was in Kensington, a multiracial working-class neighborhood struggling with poverty and its attendant ills, and not someplace else. Lights, Camera, Crime is an early installment of the Inquirer's A More Perfect Union project, aimed at examining the roots and branches of racism in U.S. institutions, including media institutions. The story was reported by Layla A. Jones. We'll speak to Layla Jones today on Counterspin. That's coming up, but first a look back at some recent press. President Biden nominated Gigi Sohn to the FCC last October to fill a Democratic seat vacant since January of 2021. So why hasn't she been confirmed yet? Advocates suspect the corporate media lobby is trying to sink the nomination of the longtime consumer advocate. Sohn would take the fifth seat at the FCC, which is right now deadlocked with two Democratic and two Republican appointees. Without a fifth member, the agency is largely non-functional, which is just peachy for the corporations it's meant to regulate. The stalled nomination has gotten remarkably little press, with the notable exception of the Wall Street Journal, which has run three editorials and an op-ed, warning that Sohn is a media censor, polarizing and destructive, who wants to silence conservative voices. It might seem curious, then, that right-wing outlets like OAN and Newsmax are supporting her nomination. The journal acknowledged this in one of its editorials and tried to wave it away as pure self-interest, arguing again that Sohn wants less political diversity on the airwaves. It's just a tough argument to make when the very outlets she supposedly wants to see suppressed are backing her. The reason OAN and Newsmax back Sohn and the journal and its owner, Rupert Murdoch, oppose her is because this isn't so much a right versus left battle as big versus small. Sohn has worked for decades in communications policy advocating for an open and accessible Internet. She was a top aide at the FCC during the Obama administration, helping implement net neutrality rules that were later repealed under Trump. Net neutrality, listeners know, ensures that broadband providers have to provide equal data speeds to all companies and not offer fast lanes for big corporations that can pay more for them while throttling others. This unequal access would give unfair advantages to big corporations and stifle competition from smaller outfits. 
Maybe even more concerning for TV network OAN and Newsmax, which also has a TV channel, is media conglomerate control over the airwaves. Sohn spoke out against Sinclair Broadcast Group's attempted merger with Tribune Media Company, which would have dramatically consolidated the local broadcast TV market. And that merger had to be stopped in the face of mounting public opposition. Actually, according to the group Free Press, the journal isn't the only media company working to block Sone. Comcast recently hired lobbyists with close ties to Arizona and West Virginia to work on telecom policy. Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin are seen as key swing votes on Sone's appointment. The FCC needs to fill its fifth seat to do its critical work regulating media infrastructure. Gigi Sohn is clearly qualified. So now's a great time to tell your senator to confirm her immediately when they return from recess. Media monitor Andrew Tyndall, who's been tracking broadcast nightly news since 1988, found that ABC, CBS, and NBC devoted 562 minutes to the first full month of the war in Ukraine. That's more than the first month of the U.S. invasion of Panama, the U.S. intervention in Somalia, and even the first month of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. As cited by Jim Loeb in Responsible Statecraft, Tyndall found that even the two peak months of coverage of the Iraq War each saw less saturated coverage than last month in Ukraine, a fact he found astonishing. We can only conclude that war is much more newsworthy when you're not the one waging it. As the GOP pushes and passes broad laws to prohibit books, discussions, or mental health services on issues of gender identity or sexual orientation under the absurd guise of preventing sexual abuse, the Washington Post is laying out a welcome mat for the party's anti-LGBTQ plus agenda. Under the headline, Teachers Who Mention Sexuality Are Grooming Kids, Conservatives Say... Washington Post writers Hannah Natanson and Mariah Balingit spent the first 12 paragraphs of their April 5th article describing and quoting right-wing claims that teachers talking about gender identity or sexual orientation and those who support them, quote, want children primed for sexual abuse, close quote. As Julie Holler writes for FAIR.org, these malicious accusations are part of a spreading movement led by Florida's Don't Say Gay law, and of course they have not a shred of truth to them. But they will certainly stifle free speech in classrooms and further endanger LGBTQ plus students at a time when many are struggling even more than usual because of the pandemic. It barely matters that the Post brought in some experts later to offer the other side that actually talking about these things, in fact, helps curtail sexual abuse, which in schools primarily happens at the hands of heterosexual male teachers, noted all the way down in the 37th paragraph of the article, and they help curtail bullying against LGBTQ kids. In giving the GOP the headline and the extraordinarily lengthy lead, the reporters gave a bigoted and dangerous campaign the right to frame the story as a debate with two somehow comparable sides. 
Finally, in the wake of a devastating new report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, we learned, by way of a tweet from climate scientist Peter Kalmus, of a little squib on the front page of the April 10th Los Angeles Times. It reads, quote, Earth on track to be unlivable. Global warming will surpass tipping point unless greenhouse gas emissions fall fast, a report says, close quote and directs any interested readers to turn to page three. Earth to become unlivable, story on page three. If they need something for the time capsule to explain corporate media response to climate disruption, that will do nicely. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Anywhere in this country, you can turn on the local TV news and see pretty much the same thing. Two hosts, likely a man and a woman, joshing back and forth in between tightly edited clips. A weather person in front of a green screen, some sports, and crime. Lots of crime. Shootings and stabbings and muggings, police taped streets, people marched off in handcuffs, often followed by a call for viewers to phone tips into a Crime Stopper hotline. You're watching Eyewitness News, or some variant on the format pioneered in Philadelphia in the 1960s. Along with its competitor-slash-corollary Action News, this format didn't just revolutionize local TV news, attracting viewers and the ad money that comes with them. It directed viewers' gaze in particular ways, presenting black Philadelphians through a lens of pathology their communities as sources of danger and threat. The Philadelphia Inquirer is engaged in a project looking at the roots of systemic racism in America through institutions founded in Philadelphia. Lights, Camera, Crime is an early installment, a look at a widely influential news format and its impacts, reported by our guest, Layla A. Jones. She joins us now by phone from Philadelphia. Welcome to Counterspin, Layla Jones. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, it's strange to think of the eyewitness news format starting. You know, for for many people, it's the only sort of local TV news they've ever known is this kind of crime, crime, crime. Here's a penguin at the zoo, you know. Um, (laughs) What did you learn about the origin story of this way of doing local TV news? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That was a feeling that I had while reporting that, you know, this is the kind of news that you think just existed. But no, it was created and intentionally. And also, can I say that that intro really wrapped up the whole piece? I don't see what else I could possibly add. (laughs) But but yes, what I I learned reporting this out, I spoke with the creator of Eyewitness News. It started in 1965. And basically, he was a young guy at the time, 30 years old. And prior to Eyewitness News, what news looked like was one middle-aged to older white male reading through the news in like a radio format, a radio newsreader format. And what the creator of Eyewitness News, Al Primo, learned was that you could have multiple reporters appear on screen with their original reported stories for no additional cost to the station. And when he learned that, he just made it a lot more dynamic. He made a family of reporters, a family of anchors, the male and female that you talked about. They kind of banter back and forth. 
and what we called it in the piece was kind of the rise of infotainment. It was a mix of showbiz and news, and it was on purpose to draw eyes to get more advertising and more revenue for the stations. Prior to that, news was not profitable, and afterward, news became network's big moneymaker. And the format worked so well that, as listeners know, it really spread around the country. Well, I guess let's talk about the context in which this is happening in Philadelphia, because as this infotainment kind of format is growing up and and flourishing, this is a time of white flight and changes, demographic racial changes in Philadelphia. And that backdrop or that context is important. Yes, exactly. And and like you mentioned, it did spread um, eyewitness news and then action news, which came afterwards. It went to more than 200 U.S. cities. It also went international, that format. But yeah, when it was coming up in the late 60s and action news in the early 70s, at the same time, there was this suburbanization and white flight happening in urban centers. And for a variety of reasons, if we were coming off of the civil rights movement, there was a change in industry and work in cities. But also, the news was broadcasting city and urban life as something scary, as something very Black, as something dangerous. And I guess what we kind of talk about in the piece is that this portrayal of urban environment definitely did fuel fear among viewers. They basically said, we proved in the lab that the more people watched local television news, the more likely they were to associate criminality with being Black, the more likely they were to support criminal justice policies that fuel mass incarceration, like longer sentences, and even the death penalty. And so the way that TV news portrayed Black and urban communities really did affect and does affect people's public opinions of Black people and of our communities. Well, let's talk a little bit about what that format was. One of reporter that you spoke to, and one of the great things about the piece is that you really do talk to a lot of veteran journalists, you know, who were there. A guy, Vernon Odom, describes the format as, quote, you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll watch him die, close quote. So it's no secret internally that they're doing a particular kind of coverage. And in fact, they were told they had, a, you know, consultants tell them, no, crime is your thing. You want to go with crime. And then the question is, what crime? Crimes committed by whom or in which community? They're making decisions. It's not an accident the way this news looks and the effects that it has. Yeah, you are exactly right. And I think that an important point to make is that what was happening when these formats were on the rise is really multi-layered. So first of all, it was being run at the top and even from the top, basically all the way down by all white people. A lot of these people were very young because in 1965, 1970, this was brand new. So they're all learning together. Then they're intentionally trying to attract, and this is especially action news, intentionally trying to attract a suburban audience, and locally, our suburbs are are more white. So they're trying to attract a white suburban audience because they believe that's where the money is, and that's what's going to draw advertisers. We also looked at the commercials. A lot of the commercials in between these new segments featured 
white families and white picket fences and things that you don't really see in the cities that they're reporting about. So with all those layers going on, what action news found to work for them and what shot them up past their competitor eyewitness news was focusing happy, upbeat, and community-oriented stories in the suburbs. So the stories about backyard festivals or charity events, they'll have a photographer go out there just to cover those good events to make those people feel seen and to make sure they tune in and watch the news. At the same time, the stories that can fill up the time and the newscast and are easy, quick, close by, and cheap to cover, which is literally what a veteran anchor, Larry Kane, told me, are crime stories. He was like, you know, the photographer would just shoot the blood, you shoot the scene, you shoot the victim, whatever they have to say, and you can do it in 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. And speed was another element of this format. And so it created this dichotomy. And again, I like to say that I don't believe from talking to anyone that it was like, we hate Black people and we just want to make them look bad. I just think it was a complete carelessness and then once they were told, because the stations had been told, this is harmful, they never changed their approach. And I think that's really important, too. Well, and the piece has that complexity within it, in part because it just allows people to speak and people are complex. You know, this this is, of course, a long unfolding conversation and struggle. And it goes back to you know, media depictions of black people and brown people and the impacts that has societally that goes back to the founding, you know, and I always recommend here the book News for All the People by Joe Torres and Juan Gonzalez on that, which is excellent. And then some of our listeners are going to remember the Kerner Commission report back in the wake of 1967 unrest that talked about the problems that we're just talking about, saying that the news is pathologizing black communities and it makes it seem as though only white people have full lives, you know, and go to PTA meetings. Black reporters have been trying to navigate this from the beginning, haven't they? And I I just found their experiences and their different strategies very interesting. And I was happy to see to see those voices in the piece. Yeah, it's funny because even before, like, reporters were really a thing, Black people have been correcting, like, media narratives. So one of the examples, and it happened in Philadelphia that I mentioned, was in 1793, after the yellow fever epidemic, Black leaders had to put out their version of news to correct a racist account of their work during that epidemic, their health and safety work. And so what some of the pioneering African-American reporters that I spoke with were Tree Haynes, who is now 95. And in 1965, she was the first Black woman news reporter in Philadelphia when she was hired at Eyewitness News, and which was something intentional that the creator, Al Primo, wanted to do. He said he learned that people wanted to see Black people and Brown people on the news. Mm -hmm. And she said that She went out and she tried to do whatever it was that our brown story was. That's what she said. She said she always tried to look for the color. She did what she thought the story should do. And in the editing, she went back with the editors and demanded that they use certain images to run with her story. And usually, you know, she was talking about images of black people, you know, being positive, productive, normal, like we are. (laughs) Vernon Odom said something really similar, that even when he covered hard news like crime, like violence, like disaster, that he tried to put in the social context 
that he understood as a black person and that his white colleagues did not understand is what he said. But, you know, so they, they always have worked really hard. And, you know, I think a lot of black people have a desire to represent our communities correctly. But one thing I did was ask Miss Trudy Haynes if she felt like her work there caused institutional change at the station. And what she said was, I don't know if they felt the same way I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she said, I just, you know, tried my best and I stayed on as long as I could. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's always a question and an active question. Do you work inside institutions that need change? Do you go build a whole nother ship over there? And I think we always kind of land on doing both and, and hopefully supporting one another. And it, it's very important to people aren't calling for just more upbeat stories about black people in the news. You know, it's presenting a more full human picture of black communities also involves unpacking the quote unquote negative stories and actually being able to talk about racism and white supremacy and institutions. And just to go back for one second to that format, one of the things about the format is that it doesn't do follow up. You see the crime, you see the violence, but it isn't the practice of an eyewitness news station to go back to that community, to go back to that family later. And it's that depth and complexity that is that's part of what people are demanding yeah, or calling for. Exactly. One of the experts I talked to, basically, he called it extractive. Like they just drop in, you know, we've heard of parachute journalism get their story and go. And that's just because, you know, that's what it's designed to do. It wants to be quick, it wants to be fast, and it wants to get eyeballs on the newscast. It really isn't necessarily about telling the best story. The anchors and reporters from the past and present told me that they kind of feel like print journalists get to tell, you know, a more holistic story and they just want to be quick. Right. Yeah, And so that's how we kind of get where we are now. Mm-hmm. And cheap as well. Well, yes, yes. this interrogation of, of institutions and practices, and I know anyone listening knows that we're not talking about, this isn't history, we're talking about history because of the way that it relates to the present. It's part of a bigger project that has deeper intentions than most. I, I'd like to ask you to tell us a little bit about the Inquirer's Project, a more perfect union that this piece is part of, because listeners will know that, you know, after George Floyd, there was a moment where we kept hearing that there was going to be a reckoning. We get a reckoning every, you know, year or so. Um, we, We hear that we're reckoning with racism in this country. But media outlets seem to take it more seriously than they generally do to see themselves as also institutions that need to be looking internally and looking at their role. And that's what this A More Perfect Union project is about, isn't it? Yeah. So um, A More Perfect Union at the Philadelphia Inquirer, it was created by Erin Haynes. Mm-hmm. She is our contributing editor, and she also is like the founder at the 19th. But basically, the overarching view of this project is that Philadelphia was the home to a lot of first institutions, the first hospital, the first prison, the first bank, and things like that. So if we talk about institutional racism, we're looking kind of in a lot of places to Philadelphia to figure out how those institutions were founded and how from their beginning, racism was baked in. Then we're going forward through the present to see how it's still affecting people, tracing it through that origin point till today. 
and then kind of trying to look to the future and see, are these institutions making changes? Why or why not? Where can they make changes? And how can we create a more perfect union with the belief that America like can work for everyone? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, finally, nobody you spoke with thinks the work is done or has a kind of, you know, rose-colored glasses view towards it. We will see how truly radical media are going to allow this institutional interrogation work to be. But if we mm. don't fight for it, then then what are we doing? And there's a lot we can learn along the way. Yeah, and I will say that the first chapter, the Inquirer did a look at its own self. I think it was founded in like 1829, and we got a freelancer to dig into like the racial yeah. hiring discrimination here. And so... It is something that I think media organizations, especially because they're so public-facing, are trying to really take a look at. Yeah, that was Wesley Lowry, and I would yes. love to end. He he quotes Reverend Mark Tyler, who says, I don't know if the Inquirer is capable of the change that is needed, just like I don't know that America is capable of the change that is needed, but I desperately hope that it is. Mm. Sounds about right. Any final thoughts? One thing that I wanted to say kind of about the importance of this series and these media stories is that kind of bringing it into right now in the Ukraine with the war going on, they had African-American human rights aides going over to help. And they put out a press release saying that they might face racism from the Ukrainians. And the reason that they said that Black people might especially be victim to that kind of harm and treatment is because of how they're portrayed in the media and because Ukrainians don't usually see African-Americans. And that's kind of the whole problem with the TV news that is portraying Black people to people who don't even live around them, don't live around us. And so it just shows kind of how important those false and non-objective narratives are in shaping public opinion. All right. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Layla A. Jones, reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer. You can find Lights, Camera, Crime, How a Philly-Born Brand of TV News Harmed Black America, and accompanying video, along with other pieces from the A More Perfect Union Project, online at inquirer.com. Layla Jones, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The website's also the place to learn about our newsletter. It's called Extra, and it's also the place to show support for FAIR if you're so inclined. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.